Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Live around the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. Good morning to you. Uh, it is uh, the Michael Duke Show. And wow, what a what a what a what a Monday. What a Monday it is, my friends. Uh the uh got stuck in my own driveway yesterday. I mean, like that's didn't expect it. Didn't expect it, but yet here we are. A uh, little little more snow, a little more cold. Uh thought we were on the downhill slide to spring and uh got suckered in. That's what happened. Got suckered into it. Uh luckily we got all unstuck and everything's good, but uh yeah, little snow today. The uh in fact, the Anchorage School District has shut down their school today for remote learning instead uh, because of uh, the pro- I mean, they're having a problem now. They don't even know where they're going to put all the new snow that's coming down right this second. They still have 800, 800 cul-de-sacs that have yet to be cleaned out in the city, and they're already worried about the uh, they're already worried about where they're going to put all the snow. They may have to leave it right there, which is going to make the residents of Anchorage so happy, so happy with all the snow that's going on there <laughs> all over the place anyway. Oh, man. <clears throat> so that's one thing. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Matsu has not reported whether or not they're going to be doing remote learning. I have not seen that. But I did get an email this morning from the uh, Anchorage School District. So we'll we'll see what's going on. We'll see what's happening. Of course, the biggest news uh, over the weekend is we are now up to four. Four unidentified objects. Well, slightly. I mean, they're identified. Anyway, four objects shot down over the U.S. and Canada in the last eight days. Um, starting, of course, with the big enormous balloon that was shot down over off the course of the Carolinas uh, last week. Then uh, a second object that was shot down um, out by Dead Horse. Um, That was um, the military shot down that piece on Friday. They'd been tracking it since Thursday. They wouldn't couldn't confirm or wouldn't or couldn't confirm exactly what it was. Um, but they did say that it was flying at an altitude of 40,000 feet. They had to reroute a flight from, um, uh, I guess, from uh, it was from Anchorage to uh, Red Dog. Anyway, they had to reroute it because this thing was in the flight path. That was shot down. Then on Saturday, a, another unidentified object was shot down over Canada in a joint U.S.-Canadian NORAD exercise. 
shot down by a USF-22. And then yesterday, I mean, just like they just keep on coming. Yesterday, they shot one down that uh, was over Lake Huron uh, in in the Midwest. Um, So that's, again, four different things shot down in just the... uh, in just the last eight days, part of that is due uh, to the fact that they basically turned their radar, they tuned their radars down a little bit to look for slower moving objects. Uh, that was from the AP story. Uh, they said they were uh, they were starting to look and change the way they looked at things uh, because I think basically the NORAD, uh, uh, you know, the infrastructure and the early warning system is based looking for fast movers. And now they're like, okay, uh, now we're looking for things that are a little bit slower. Um, <clears throat> and it's uh, it's interesting to see. The U.S. Canadian authorities had restricted some airspaces over Lake Huron early Sunday as planes were scrambled to intercept and try and identify the object. According, according to a senior administration official, this one was octagonal with strings hanging off but had no discernible payload. And it was flying lower than the other ones at about 20,000 feet. Uh, Meanwhile, U.S. officials still trying to precisely identify two other objects shot down by F-22 fighter jets and working to determine whether China was responsible. No word yet as to whether or not that was uh, the case on the other two objects. The first one was acknowledged to be from China. That was the one that had a... uh, uh, that's the one that had the big undercarriage on it that was the size of three school buses. Um, and they're still recovering. They're going to recover pieces and parts of this stuff to try and figure out exactly where all this stuff came from. Uh, and what exactly is it that they're trying to do? Is this part of a signals intelligence operation that China is trying to man? Because obviously they can get better, uh, they can probably get better coverage from satellites for actual visual surveillance, uh, but are they looking to collect uh, signals intelligence, which is basically, you know, line of sight uh, radio and communication, laser traffic, everything else. Is that what they're trying to do? Um, A, the the original balloon uh, was equipped to detect and collect signals intelligence, and it could maneuver itself, although the Chinese officials say that it was a meteorological ship that had been blown off course, and of course the U.S. was overreacting by shooting it down, I suggested that maybe we should release some balloons over China to see how they react. Um, you know, just to see if they're they <clears throat> see if they're as as, as, com- as complacent as we were supposed to be apparently uh, throughout this whole thing. But uh, it's got some, I, you know, it's got people talking. It's got people worried. When you look at this, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions about exactly what the heck is going on to have four things in eight days shot down. Um, and again, <clears throat> it raises the bigger question: um, How long have these things been going out there? Especially when you read the AP story, and it talks about how they uh, how they turned down the uh, how they changed. I guess the the slower objects that's what they were looking for us authorities have made it clear that they are constantly monitoring for unknown radar blips and it's not unusual to shut down airspace as a precaution but the unusually assertive response was raising questions about whether such a force was warranted particularly 
as administration officials say the objects were not of great national security concerns and that the downings were just caution. But uh, the U.S. adjusted its radar so it could track slower objects. Quote, with some adjustments, we're able to get a better categorization of radar tracks now. And that's why I think you're seeing these, plus these heightened alert to look for this information. So we didn't even know what we were looking for before that uh, we'll see. We'll see what's uh, we'll see what's going on there. But this is the big news. And of course, a lot of folks are mm, they're getting worried uh, about this um, and uh, starting to peak a little interest. But how long has it been going on? That's a, that's a big question, isn't it? How long has this been going on? Um, so we could, uh, we got that. I'm sure we'll dive deeper into that uh, later today or tomorrow. Meanwhile, today on the program, we're about to jump into it. I'm sorry. I got right into the stories this morning. I forgot to mention, we're going to be talking with Dr. Chad Savage here in just a few minutes, uh, about healthcare choices and the option of direct primary care, which, uh, we've talked about in this program in the past, but not in any depth. And so we're going to talk to Dr. Chad Savage about that here uh, in just a few moments, we're going to get into that and talk with him um, and, uh, and take him through the hour with it. And then in hour two, uh, we're going to talk with Sarah Montalbano. It'll be Montalbano Mondays for educational stuff. Um, she's going to come on board and we're going to talk about a variety of uh, a variety of uh, educational um, issues. Uh, including the chance for choice and more Sarah Montalbano, of course, with the Alaska policy form. And we'll, uh, we'll see what, uh, we'll see what, uh, she has to say, uh, tomorrow, an hour, an hour two. That's what I was looking for. Hour, hour two. Uh, so that's, uh, coming up, uh, right here as well. So big, uh, big shift, big change. Uh, we'll talk about Alaska student performance in reading and math and the first systemic, uh, what they call the Alaska System of Academic Readiness, the STAR. These are some new reports that uh, uh, she's written from the Alaska Policy Forum. And then again, school choice. That's that's kind of where we're at uh, overall. Okay, man, lots of stuff. Lots of stuff that uh, we could be talking about. This whole... This whole uh, weather balloon, Chinese balloon, unidentified flying object. I mean, they, it's actually in this story from the, that they're not even ruling out, you know, when you say that these things are identified, they're like, we're not ruling anything out. We have no idea. One is like a hexagon. One was a big balloon. One was shaped more like a capsule or a pill or a blimp. I mean, are they all just blimps or more airships or what? Nobody knows. And of course, that's the problem is when you don't know, it makes for a lot of questions. So I'm sure we'll find out more in the next few days. We may be expending ordinance on things, shooting things out of the sky for God knows how long at this point. Now that we're looking for them, we're looking for the slow movers instead of the fast movers. Um, the Matsu still struggling with their school bus operations, uh, Durham uh, School Services, the bus company, now it turns out, oof, that they've been running without local permits since they got started. Um, there was a conditional use permit they needed to use for their bus barn, uh, which they apparently didn't get ahead of time and only discovered it 
early last year and have been working ever since to get it done. So they've been running without that and some kind of DEC permit for water or uh, water usage or public water there at the same area. It just adds insult to injury for people who have been complaining about what's going on over there. Of course, we're entering the third week now of the strike for the uh, with rolling bus cancellations and everything else. So uh, definitely not. It's not a good look. It's not a good look. People often say, well, why didn't we just keep the why didn't we just keep the the same company that we'd been doing it that did it so well for so many years? Well, because they didn't turn in a conforming bid. <clears throat> Apparently they turned in a bid. During the uh, the first student, that was the name of the prior uh, longtime bus company that had been here for years. Apparently, they uh, they turned in a bid, but the bid that they submitted didn't meet district specifications, and so literally they were left with just the Durham bid that met the qualifications of the bid proposal. I, I guess that's what it was all about. So it's uh, we'll we'll see what's we'll see what's happening with that. That's out there as well. And then, of course, there's a whole nother article and a commentary about how the House my, uh, House majority is just, they don't have any priority. You could just see how bad this is as we, as we go through this, um, where the even the ADN is like, they're not, they're not, if this had been the House majority led by Louise Stutes, it wouldn't be getting kind of the same kind of uh, rundown that you're getting now. But there's another article about there that after a month into the session, the GOP House majority is still deciding its priorities. Um, that just just how they're weighing in on all this this morning. So that's the full story. We've got Dr. Chad Savage coming up here in just a hot second. Uh, so we best uh, we best take our break and come back here in just a minute. We're going to talk about medical choice. Direct primary care. Like I said, we've talked about this on the program before. This is a pretty ingenious and simple idea, but boy, the bureaucrats really hate it. Dr. Chad Savage wants to talk about why don't we just make medical choice as easy as, say, I don't know, streaming choice. You like your Netflix? You can keep your Netflix. That's what we're talking about. Up next with Dr. Chad Savage, The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty Base, Free Thinking Radio. Our light, our guide, and our trusted friend. All right, we're at the break, ready to get into this here. It looks like Dr. Savage is in the green room with us, so let's uh, let's blow this thing here and go over here to the. Uh, to the streams and pull up Dr. Savage so we can get uh, some ready discussions going on this morning. Good morning, Dr. Savage. How are you? Good morning, Michael. How are you? You know, it's just another beautiful day in paradise. That's all I'm saying right now. Yeah. Little snow, little cold. Everywhere in Alaska, I can only imagine. Yeah, well, it's not too bad. I mean, it's not too bad. It was a lot of snow yesterday, so we're feeling it. But yeah. uh, I'm ready to really talk about. Uh, I'm really, really uh, talk about this. This is something that we have we kind of dove into here a few years ago uh, when I first heard about direct primary care. Uh, you know, some people have said, well, this is kind of like concierge care or blah. I'm just, I'm all for giving people more choice. 
and yeah, uh, and I think this is uh, this is an important topic. So I'm excited to hear from you on it. Um, but we are about uh, three minutes and forty seconds away from rejoining the radio, and so if you'll uh, hold the line for us, we'll 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 sure. get things going. Is, that, is the connection okay? Is connection is okay? Yeah. Okay, good. good. Uh, I I can hear you, and uh, we'll. Uh, I'll just be, I'll just be riding your volume a little bit to make sure that we can uh, get a good solid connection from you. So we'll be doing that here in just a moment. Um, all right. So if you'll hold the line, I'll be right back to you. Okay. All Thank right. You. Uh, Doctor Chad Savage, <clears throat> our guest, our guest here on the program. Oh, it's Monday. Uh, I'm just. I'm feeling it. You guys ready? Let me. Uh, Durham has been a poo show for the minute they set foot in Alaska. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it is, uh, it's been a hot mess. Every time, you know, you turn one more rock over and you find out something new about what's going on. Um, I'm scrolling backwards, scrolling backwards, scrolling backwards. See what you guys have been talking about. Um, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) Any objects seen lately? Said Christopher. Well, Funny you should ask, because they just shot down another one. Um, yep, remote learning. Uh, lived here my whole life and hate the snow more every year since Jerica. Spending last winter in Florida was a dream. Well, but it was Florida. I mean, you know, come on, it's Florida. Um, I mean, it's nice to be someplace warm, don't get me wrong, but it's Florida. Um, all those objects are pods off the big balloons, sort of like Troy from Rome, <laughs> maybe. Um, uh, they're going to shoot one and it will have an EMP in it. Well, I, an EMP to have any effect would have to be a significant, uh, portion. It would have to be up into the low, low stratosphere. I mean, it has to be pretty high for it to affect a big area. Otherwise that EMP effect would be pretty localized. It's all line of sight. So the higher you are, the more you could see to the horizon. That's what it's all about. Um, the reality is this, we've just suffered a massive incursion into our sovereign airspace. All it takes is one of those balloons to have an EMP, a biological weapon attached to it. And we're in the second act of Mad Max. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering what's going on. Uh, HB 47, my direct primary care bill comes up for its first hearing on Saturday, says representative Kevin McCabe. Well, Awesome. Maybe you could invite Dr. Savage in to, to comment on it, uh, you know, at your hearing. That wouldn't be a bad thing. If you can work it out with him, that might be uh, some good stuff. All right. Uh, we are 60 seconds out. Um, uh, I would like to know more about the invalid bid by first student. We had them contracted for decades, and now suddenly they don't know how to submit a proper bid. Uh, sus. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Too late. Uh, All right. Uh, 40 seconds. Ready to go here. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Make sure that you like and share this video. Like and follow the show page. That you subscribe and ring the bell on YouTube. And you follow us on Twitch. Does that cover everything? I think it covers the whole gamut of everything that we need. We've done it all. And we're ready to go. Uh, Let's... uh, Let's get, let's get back in. It's been a weekend. It's been a weekend. Hey, that's a reminder to shut my pie hole and let's get into it. Here we go. Common Sense Radio. Let's do it. 
Okay. You ready to do things here this morning? You, you ready to put your learning hat on? It's time to learn. It's time to learn something new. Let's talk a little bit about uh, direct primary care. It is like the Netflix, the ultimate choice, uh, giving you the ability to choose your doctor and uh, and to avoid a lot of the government bureaucracy and excessive costs that we see today. Joining us to discuss uh, this in greater detail is Dr. Chad Savage, who has written a piece uh, for uh, RealClearHealth.com, which is part of the Real Clear Politics uh, website. Uh, Dr. Savage is the founder of Your Choice Direct Care in Brighton, Michigan. And we're going to talk about uh, making it as easy as choosing, you know, which streaming service you want to use. Dr. Savage joins us uh, this morning to discuss. Good morning, doctor. How are you? Morning, Michael. Good. How about yourself? You know, again, not a bad day. We're ready to do it. We get a chance to talk and dive a little bit deeper into something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. So I'm glad you guys has reached out to us uh, to discuss it. Let's talk for just a little bit here. Let's let's set the groundwork for what people are looking at, you know, for the idea of medical choice and direct primary care. Let's talk a little bit about that to begin with. Sure. So, so during the break, you made the appropriate observation that a lot of people confuse direct primary care with something that kind of structurally seems similar on the surface called concierge. Um, both are essentially you, you pay a fee to see the physician and it's essentially on a membership type basis. The difference is concierge is intentionally more expensive. Direct primary care, we're trying to, to uh, solve the accessibility problems while also decreasing price and improving quality. And that seems like an outlandish claim to be able to do that. When, But when you realize just how broken the governmental insurance company complex driven current practice of medicine is, it's actually easier to do than you'd think. So for people who are not familiar with direct primary care, uh, it's a membership model of medical care. And classically, those prices can be anywhere from like $39 a month to $89 a month or in that vicinity for uh, you see your doctor as much as you want, your primary care doctor. Uh, and each state's a little different. Um, and this is timely because Alaska is actually uh, uh, looking at legislation that may be able to really solidify the direct primary care model up in, in your state. Um, but in my state of Michigan, we're allowed to dispense medications to our patients. So we obtain them at cost. We dispense them to our patient. And just to give you an example of the type of saving you can achieve with that, uh, we prescribe a medication called amlodipine to help control blood pressure, which is one of, you know, high blood pressure is one of the leading causes of premature preventable death in the United States. And I can treat that for an entire month with that medication amlodipine dispensed to the patient for under 25 cents for an entire month, which means you can treat one of the leading causes of premature preventable death for an entire month for less than the cost of a single gumball. And that's just one of the ways we try to achieve savings. We also directly contract with labs so we can get uh, labs at at cost in our local university hospital. We'll charge $600 for a traditional wellness visit panel, whereas we're able to obtain that same panel for about $30. And all the telemedicine, all the visits, we don't charge for any of that kind of stuff. And each drug primary care practice is a little different. Different. It's not a franchise, but that general concept of care is spreading rapidly in the in the United States. And one of the areas really could offer a, a huge benefit is Alaska, uh, mainly some right. of those rural areas that have uh, a harder ability to access doctors. Doctors can make a practice work for with 400, 500 patients versus 
the 2000 to 3000 that a traditional doctor office has to have so they could open in in underserved areas of Alaska and 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 make a good successful practice that's actually higher quality than what you're currently experiencing under the insurance model. Well, and I think that's the interesting thing your article points out that, you know, the, of course the one thing that people don't uh, take into account is the cost of regulatory burdens, bureaucracies, IRS mandates, all these things that get baked into the insurance. People are like, healthcare is so expensive. And then they hear you say $39, $59, $89 a month. How is that even possible? Well, it's because you've taken out all the in-betweeners and the bureaucracy and everything else, and you've kicked that to the curb. In fact, your article states that some hospitals have discovered that they can deliver health care for 68% less if they went to like a direct primary care model, 60, 70, you would be paying almost just 30% of what you normally pay if we just get the bureaucrats out of the middle of it. Yeah. And, and I actually experienced myself that exact phenomena. So this is me speaking on both sides as a patient myself and as, as a provider. So, um, you know, what, what I experienced on the insurance front, I used to have a very busy, successful insurance practice, but it was a horrible experience to experience to live that as a doctor, you're constantly running, uh, you're, the pressure building in your chest is constant, uh, you, you know, you're always running late, it was a miserable experience, it wasn't the calling that many doctors feel to the practice of medicine, it was pure bureaucracy. But um, so what I found is that when I switched my practice away from the insurance model, and we started working directly for our patients, it's such a simplistic billing process, every month, you charge it out like a gym membership, in fact, it's around the price of a gym membership, and then you don't really think about money other than the ways you can save patients money. My overhead dropped by over 50% in my own practice. So, so I can attest personally to those <laughs> numbers that they were accu accurate, at least in my own practice. But then I can also say I left a hospital system at that time. And I, I, like many other people, were out looking for coverage. And I decided to combine what I'm doing, direct primary care, with less expensive coverage for things that go beyond the outpatient, beyond the primary care experience. Because we can do about 80% in primary right. care. Right. But 20%, if you need an appendectomy or something like that, obviously direct primary care, you're not going to do that in the, in the break room with a butter knife. You need a hospital for that. So there's something called health sharing ministries. And I and there are other options too, short-term limited duration plans and other alternatives to the traditional insurance. But my own family, we decided to go with a health sharing ministry called Samaritan. And there are several out there. And people have to look for themselves to see if they fit the bill for them. But in the first five years from 2015 to 2020 that I engaged in direct primary care for 80% of my medical needs, saw the doctor as much as I wanted, and combined it with health sharing ministry for the things that go beyond the outpatient spectrum, my family saved $88,000 over the premium cost of the uh, traditional ACA Obamacare insurance product alone, uh, uh, accessing the doctors as much as I wanted, where in the insurance model, that was just a premium. That was what I paid to have that piece of plastic in my pocket. That was without ever seeing a doctor $88,000 in savings. And if you march that out over a decade, that's a modest house, not in deprivation or rationing of care, but in actual savings on better care. Right. Now, let's talk for a second, because I think you just hit on one of the things that people don't necessarily always understand about direct primary care, is that it is for that 80% of stuff that's basically, you know, your your bre it's your bread and butter, you know, uh, blood pressures, labs, uh, you know, basic checkups, things like that. Oh, I've got a cough or, you know, whatever. It's not for, 
oh, I've torn my ACL and I need to figure something out or I've, uh, you know, need a CAT scan because my head is rattling or whatever it is. There are some specialty things that need to go beyond that. We've talked about Samaritan's Purse on the uh, on the program here in the past, and there are several other I don't know what they're called, HSAs or, you know, some kind of, again, some of these uh, Mm -hmm. uh, co-ops for people who want to. Basically, it's almost like private insurance where you put as much money into the kitty as you feel like you can afford. And if something happens, you're taken care of. But there are other options. And uh, I think the government hates this. Uh, I really do. I think that sometimes they they want to fight back against this because you're fighting the system. And I know you've been working on that uh, against that as well. Yeah, actually, it's surprising the scope of things we could do. You mentioned an ACL blowing out a knee. Actually, this morning, I saw an ACL patient in all likelihood, a guy who had a skiing accident, came in a massively swollen knee. Um, so, you know, we're not the orthopedist. If, if this turns out to be a knee injury needing surgery, he sure. will need more than that. But we got an MRI form for 300 bucks. Oh. The average price in the state of Michigan is $4,200. Wow. So we're, we're, and if you think about that savings in the one test, and the rates I mentioned of our monthly membership in the savings on the one MRI, we paid for many, many years of unlimited primary care with that savings alone. Right now, should this prove to be a partial tear or something, we may be able to handle that with ever, without ever seeing the orthopedist. If it's a complete tear and he needs a reconstruction, that's when you need the orthopedist. And interestingly enough, there's innovation even on that front. I don't know of any centers that are analogous up in Alaska, but there are there are many centers opening down here in the lower 48. Uh, such as the Oklahoma Surgical Center, which you can do uh, uh, orthopedic surgeries and other surgeries on a cash basis. And uh, don't quote me on this one, but I believe it's around $4,800 uh, for an ACL. It could be more than that. I don't remember exactly. But that, that gallbladder you know, surgeries and things like that sort of definitely are in that, that, that vein. And that's 90% less than the rates people are charged on the insurance, frequently falling under what they're their catastrophic deductibles are, you know, it's so funny, you need insurance to cover rare catastrophes. You don't need it to cover common stuff. That's what in direct primary care, we're covering the common stuff. Don't cover that through insurance. Right. You made something that's a low cost, predictable, budgetable uh, expense, and you suddenly made it expensive. Um, but the premium on these insurances currently is itself a catastrophe. Dr. Chad Savage is our guest founder of Your Choice Direct Care. We're talking about the option of direct primary care. Uh, And you say that states could, uh, because part of the problem here is, of course, is that there's a lot of federal red tape and regulation and state regulation. I mean, we've talked about, you know, this siloing in the past when we're talking about health care. We're talking we've in the on the program here have talked about the siloing of, well, some insurance companies can't sell across state lines and other things. You know, if there was more direct competition in health care insurance, probably insurance would be lower. But since we can't get the federal regs about selling across state lines and everything else dropped, this immediately becomes the next great option. So how do we, you know, go about, you know, partaking of this? How do we how do we do that in the uh, in the state of Alaska, for example? Yeah. So every iteration of legislation, largely on the federal front, that looks to contain costs that are exploding in healthcare, look by adding more layers of bureaucracy, and it's just putting new paint on peeling paint, which itself starts to peel, and then you put additional coats on beyond that. What we need to do is get some paint thinner, throw it on a wall, strip off that old paint, 
and start start anew. And that's kind of what direct primary care does in the appropriate vein, the low cost primary care world like myself. Now, one of the problems is, um, is that insurance regulators in each state are trying to grapple with what to think of direct primary care. Now, my argument is it has nothing to do with insurance, so they shouldn't be grappling with it. However, laws in those states clarifying that just because a doctor bills in a membership model, that does not make us insurance. And so many states uh, have passed laws clarifying that we are not insurance. And the reason this interview is so appropriately timed is your state is currently grappling with that issue. During the break, you mentioned, I believe it was Representative McCabe has a bill out right now uh, looking to clarify that, to say direct primary care is just a doctor's office billing in a different way, not a fee-for-service, not you're paying every time you come in. Um, in fact, it's great because then you don't have to think about it. You need to use your doctor. Just go use them. You don't, you don't worry about you know, some colossal copayment at that time. Um, and uh, so, so as to keep the insurance regulators uh, away from direct primary care, because if they inappropriately label us as a form of coverage or insurance, that would mean we would be subject to the colossal burden that uh, insurances go through. And as individual ones and twosy doctor's offices, there's no way we could afford to, to deal with that kind of bureaucracy and continue to exist in our current iteration. Right. We're talking about HB 47, which is the direct primary care bill put out by Representative Kevin McCabe. He said it's coming up for its first hearing this Saturday. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about what this means uh, is the relationship between the doctor and the patient as well, Dr. Savage, and I want to do that. But we're coming up on the break, so if you'll hold on with us for just a second, and we'll take you right up to the top of the hour here. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Sa uh, Dr. Uh, Chad Savage, again, who's the founder of Your Choice Direct Care, Direct Primary Care, just another way that you could be um, experiencing better better health care. Uh, which is, again, an interesting model that I've been kind of waiting for for quite a long time. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. We'll be back. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. We return in just a moment. We're broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on, on, the, on the Internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. We continue with Dr. Chad Savage uh, here uh, in, the, uh, in the chat room. Uh, doctor, like I said, I have been... Um, I've been on this DPC model for a long time. I mean, I first heard about concierge care and then I was like, well, that's great, except for that I ain't got 2000 bucks a month or whatever to pay into a concierge plan, which, you know, basically covers everything from hangnails to, uh, you know, brain surgery or whatever. But I'm just like, uh, you know, it would sure be nice. And then the DPC model was talked about. This is something that's been floating around for it's got to be close to 10 years, I think, since I first heard about it. But it yeah. really has not seemed to have gotten a lot of traction around the country uh, until just recently. I'm starting to hear about it more and more. Um, I mean, why is it? It seems so simple. Why Why is that, do you think, that it hasn't uh, gotten the traction that it needs? Yeah, so it's something different, right? You know, people are always reluctant to change, even with, with their, if they're, what they're currently doing is, is bad. Actually, it's funny. I wrote an article on that with a friend of mine who's a psychologist and it was about how, Stockholm syndrome. It was about basically medical consumers are suffering from a form of Stockholm sy syndrome. 
this is it's less expensive it's better quality of care you would think it'd be a no-brainer it's better for the doctor it's better for the patient the only one it's not good for is the middleman so you would think that it would catch on like wildfire one of my friends who's in the insurance uh, market he's actually works uh, with insurance companies we were talking about this model years ago before I engaged in it and i said my gosh it's going to take off everybody's going to be doing this in a couple years he said no they won't and i thought he was wrong but it actually turned out he was right it has grown dramatically when i started my practice about eight years ago there were several dozen of us in the nation and now there's over two thousand so it's definitely growing uh, fairly quickly but it's still small scale in, in compared to the entirety of the American healthcare system. Right. And what always struck me as ironic was some of the art, most ardent defenders of the current system were some of the people being most victimized by it, which is why we wrote that article about, you know, a medical form of Stockholm syndrome. Right. Well, and that's exactly what it is. I mean, people hate change and the change is so slow and slight. It's the frog in the pot, right? Slowly turning up the heat yeah. and boiling. People don't realize, oh, it's just a jacuzzi. No, it's a boiling pot. You're going to die. Stop, you know? Yeah. And they just don't realize it and change is hard. Uh, Senator Rob Myers is in the chat room and he asked the question, uh, so most people get their health care through their employer. Is there any move on the federal level to change the tax law so that employers can contribute to DPC in the same way they contribute to regular insurance plans? I don't know if that's dangerous or not, because then it would equate them to insurance plans. Um, and we're talking about a cost that is probably so minimal uh, uh, compared to what, you know, an employer's contribution is. I don't know. What do you say? Yeah, no, you're 100 percent. That is a very, very astute question. Actually, years ago, um, uh, the organization I'm, I, I work with, it's called DPC Action, was down in D.C. We were trying to lobby for clarification of the IRS code to to make it clear that HSAs were applicable to direct primary care because HS, HSAs, for those who don't know it, health savings account are pre-tax accounts that you can fund, which are a fantastic mechanism of healthcare savings. Basically, you you, you pay things pre-tax for medical. And we wanted to make it clear that you could use an HSA for a DPC and further that you could use an HSA for your premium. Because if you did that, you know, you don't have to worry about the employer at all. The reason people get healthcare through their employer is because it's pre-tax. Right. But if you can fund a, a, an account on your own and get it outside of a high deductible plan, basically to disconnect insurance from HSA, you could now use that HSA to not only fund direct primary care, but fund uh, the insurance product itself, which eliminates the need for employers to be de facto healthcare providers through their HR departments, because those people will own those policies. They can keep them over time. You don't have to worry about pre-existing because you buy the policy with your young and on a pre-tax basis funded through your HSA, you can keep it for the rest of your life. Uh, and that's highly attractive. And it also makes all the bureaucracies very nervous because they're like, wait, we've got a whole industry built up around this. And now you want to basically knock out the underpinnings of what we're doing. I mean, this is the same argument we see about uh, about tax laws. If we simplified the tax codes, there'd be whole industries that lost their uh, their funding source. And so, again, it's Stockholm syndrome, but at the same time, it's people who are serving their own self-interest because, hey, I built my whole life around this. So it's a hard thing to change. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, but I really would be excited to see something like this. What we're about to jump into in the next segment is that I want to talk about that special relationship. I mean, we all understand the old country doctor who knows everybody, who who knows their patients, who's been, you know, has served everybody from the lowest grandchild to the great grandmother, you know, because they've been there in the community and they know the history. And we've lost that. We've lost that in the shuffle. I mean, how many times have you been waiting for your doctor? He sees you for six point five minutes and then it's a three hundred dollar bill and you're like, 
wait a second. How did how, did I? I didn't really get to know that. You know how to, it just feels very. I guess to use the word clinical is wrong, but it feels very, you know, kind of clinical and uh, and you feel like a cog in a machine. And I think that's not what people want when it comes to their health care. So yeah, it's, it's very assembly line feeling. Exactly. Exactly. We're just, you know, stamping us out as we go by. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to get into that component of it and we will uh, we'll continue on. Dr. Chad Savage is our guest. Please like and share this video, like and follow the show page and hit subscribe. <laughs> Hit subscribe and ring the bell on YouTube. You know what that means. It's time to get back to it. Let's go. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Let's do it. All right, we're continuing now with Dr. Chad Savage, who uh, is uh, with us to discuss direct primary care. He's the founder of Your Choice Direct Care. And, uh, Doc, I got this popping in my shoulder when I push over to the left. No, never mind. <laughs> it'll be uh, it'll be fine. A couple things I want to talk about. First and foremost, uh, I want to talk about the direct uh, – I want to talk about the relationship between patient and doctor and how that has changed over the last few years. Uh, and uh, so I guess we'll – I guess we'll start there. That's the place that we really want to start. And I want to talk about your analogy on choice because I thought this was clever. Your analogy on choice uh, to the streaming services. You want the Netflix of, of, of healthcare? Do you want the Amazon Prime of healthcare? Do you want the Hulu of healthcare? So let's start there and then we'll get into the relationship aspect real quick. I mean, it should really be that simple, right? No, oh, absolutely. You know, choice exists in every industry and it's not seen as a negative in those industries. In fact, it's considered really good. You know, you can go to Walmart, you can go to Neiman Marcus, you can go to any spectrum of various uh, stores that fit your desire and your your need. I'm more of a Walmart guy. I don't like spending money unnecessarily. But that's, you know, if somebody's using their own resources, who's to say they can't go to Neiman Marcus or, or spend money in that regard? In healthcare, there's a bizarre notion that every it has to be identical for everyone. Well, that makes the false assumption that we're all identical and our desires from healthcare are all identical. No one ever stops to ask the patient, when you come to see the doctor, what is it hope you're hoping to get out of that interaction? Are you looking for reassurance? Are you looking for a diagnosis? Are you looking for pain management? Whatever. It's not. It's not stamping out widgets. And you made the appropriate uh, assessment during the break of you know that it's starting not to feel so much like that interpersonal relationship that many of us want from our, our doctor. And in fact, the doctor wants to mainly in primary care. Doctors go into primary care because they right. feel it's a calling. They don't go into it to be just a bureaucrat pencil pusher. And unfortunately, it's, it's manifested in that. And part of this is by design. Uh, several years back, in an attempt to squeeze out every ounce of productivity from a doctor, not recognizing that that doctor-patient relationship actually is a very valuable and itself healing part of that relationship. Since they can't figure out how to value it, they value it at zero. They actually brought in um, people from, uh, from the various auto industries and things of that sort into healthcare and said, okay, you're using these... Um, what is it, Sigma, Sig Sigma, I believe it is, this this kind of rapid production technique. How can we incorporate that in healthcare? Right. And they started bringing assembly line techniques to healthcare. 
Well, not surprisingly, it made it start feeling more like an assembly line. <laughs> well, people don't like feeling like widgets going down an assembly line. Right, exactly. I mean, we got fifteen people in a fifteen people in a waiting room, and they're like, "Okay, you're next." And you see the doctor for six and a half seconds, and then you get kicked out of the room, and they're like, "Okay, do this, this, and this. See ya." And you're like, "Wait, that was it?" I mean, I want, and I've been lucky enough to be able to find doctors or healthcare providers for the most part who know me more and and you you spend time and you do that smaller offices which i think is is better uh in a lot of ways but we've lost that relationship i mentioned the good old country you know the quote-unquote country doc who knew everybody who uh who took care of your kids and you who you know had birthed everybody from you know a to z and everything else knew all the history of the bit and was 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 part of the community was was a friend was somebody you did business with because you were comfortable with them and they understood you and they took the time to know you i mean you 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 do the dpc model now do you spend more than six minutes with your patients, right? I mean, is that yeah. is, is that a whole different feel for you? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, the average is 30 to minutes to an hour for every patient. Now, that doesn't mean if somebody comes in, they got a quick sore throat, they, we make them sit there for the entirety of the hour. The funny thing is because we do telemedicine and such, too, at no additional charge. That means between patients, I'm answering emails and doing video chats and other things, and then I go and, and see the person. So, so it, it And it's unrushed. So I'm very glad that you found good doctors. The interesting thing is, is they're good despite the system. They're not good because of the system. Right, exactly. This system allows the doctor, when I, I used to try so hard to be a good doctor in the insurance model, but I fought against the system to try to be good. This system is conducive to being good. Um, it allows the doctor to be as good as they're going to be. Now, that doesn't mean a bad doctor will miraculously become good under this model. That doctor uh, still has to put in good effort, be humanistic, et cetera, but it allows them to be as good as they are. It doesn't put these false parameters of, you know, every visit is five minutes. I, I mean, the, you know, they, they'll look and say, well, the average mi visit takes this long. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean the guy you're seeing right now is is going to be a quick, easy in and out. And in fact, it's a dumbing down of primary care to the fact that we can only deal with the mundane issues. Um, we're, we can handle a lot of issues, um, but we need the time to be able to do so. And the weird thing about the insurance model is it's actually designed in a way that it incentivizes uh, referrals. The doctor can bill at a higher complexity level, get paid themselves more money by not thinking about a problem, by just saying, oh, you, 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 you hurt your foot. Oh, here, let's send you over to the orthopedist. And right. they actually get 60 bucks more while doing less work. So it creates a, a, a unnecessary waste and incentivizes it. Well, and I think one thing that people would be really shocked about is to realize how much behind the scenes, how much of the doctor's overhead is taken up by having to comply, again, with the regulatory schemes, the insurance and everything else. Uh, Kevin in the chat room says this frees up doctors and nurses to be doctors and nurses instead of insurance coders and we've heard about that as well the cost of compliance and making sure you code correctly here in the state we've got a huge medicaid problem we've got one third of the state right now currently on medicaid and of course that's a very complex situation what it's led to is it's led to a shortage of doctors trying to find a shortage of trying to find a doctor sometimes in this state is amazingly hard uh one of our our personal uh, uh clinics shut down in anchorage so we were trying to find some place here locally in Wasilla where we live 50 miles away and it was very difficult. You mentioned telemedicine. They don't, you know, they want to make it hard for you to be able to use telemedicine. Well, I'd rather be able to telemed than drive 110 miles round trip to Anchorage uh and be you know, it's safer, right? The roads are horrible, blah 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 blah. But it's like they continue to throw these hurdles and roadblocks in the way. 
Well, yeah, actually one of the most interesting, even though I'm in Michigan, one of my most ardent examples of how this level of accessibility or doctor comes in handy is from a retired couple who see me, but travel all around the nation, just living up retirement. They do a great job. And one day he called me from the middle of, of nowhere in Alaska, several hours apparently from a, from a hospital. And, and he said, hey, my heart's racing. I don't know what to do about it. You know, he kind of, I think, knew in his heart what, what to do, but he was, he, he, it was such a burden to drive to that hospital hours away that um, he didn't, uh, he, he, he needed that reassurance that yes, you could be an AFib. This is an urgent issue. You, in fact, do need to stop what you're doing and make that drive and go to the hospital. And sure enough, it was first onset, new AFib. Um, and he, he just ranted and raved in, 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 in wonderful, glowing ways about how that accessibility really impacted his health. Right. Um, and you mentioned the substantial uh, amount of Medicaid in Alaska. You know, that's a funny thing, too, is people frequently think, well, direct primary care can't work for Medicaid. At least in my state, Medicaid, ironically, works wonderfully well with direct primary care. These Medicaid patients cannot find a Medicaid doctor. Or if they do, they find one who's to make Medicaid work has to have a mill. They're just cranking them in, cranking them out. They don't have the quality care they want, that relationship they want. Right. And because we're so cheap, we're actually affordable to Medicaid patients. I see more Medicaid patients now in the direct primary care model than I did when I was an insurance doctor. Right. Because if you're talking about 39 bucks a month for seeing your doctor as much as you want, well, almost anybody can scrape together 39 bucks a month for their health care. I mean, that's a pretty, yeah. you know, uh, I remember when Obamacare first went into effect, my health insurance went from $800 a month to $2,500 a month. And you're like, I would very gladly pay a couple hundred bucks a month for DPC. You know what I mean? Or $500 a month. And that's an important thing to, to, to note, too. Why do people not have the money? It's because they're cranking out the money, so much money for these premiums right. that they don't have enough left over. Again, I referenced my own example of where I saved $88,000 over five years. Well, I can do a whole heck of a lot of doctoring for $88,000 over five years. In fact, I'm talking about the Oklahoma Surgical Center. They can do a laminectomy, which is a spine surgery, full cost, wrap cost, no surprise billing for $10,500 pre-op, operative care, surgeon, surgical center, post-op care. That means, you know, in five years, what I really do I, with those savings, I could do eight spine surgeries. Well, are you going to do eight spine surgeries in five years? Almost no one would do that. Right. Um, so so the chance of, of exceeding that savings is, is preposterous. The average person in the United States doesn't have $400 to cover an unexpected medical cost. Save on the premium. Say, you know, get more, you know, cut out primary care from insurance. Let it be paid directly. People with the savings would very easily be able to afford it in almost all situations. Well, and that's a unique idea. I mean, let insurance be just for catastrophic or, you know, huge out of pocket instead of your day to day, bit, you know, bits and pieces and your your general checkups and things like that. Um, I mean, I think we could find a happy medium in there somewhere. I think it would be amazing. And, of course, your cost on the pharmaceuticals that you were just talking about. I mean, you know, we got members of my family. We've got some medicines that are four or five hundred bucks a month uh, that, you know, we have to have insurance to be able to make it affordable. If we could find something where it's a direct bill or something like that, where we could get the medicine at cost, so much the better. Uh, but there's a, a lot of lot of great stuff here. We're down to about 90 seconds here, uh, Dr. Uh, so what could folks do to bring this DPC model here to the state of Alaska? Well, I would definitely look at that legislation that we talked about earlier. Talk to Representative McCabe, his office. Try to, you know, contact your own representatives, um, you know, and, and try to get them to support this type of legislation. It's absolutely imperative. If that is not passed or that type of legislation is not passed in Alaska, 
these these type of practices may really have trouble existing. So I, I just can't stress that enough. A, a legislative fix, even on a state level, to say these are not insurance, you know, these are just doctors billing in a different way is 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 fundamentally imperative for the existence of these practices in, in the state of Alaska. If folks want to find out more about DPC, what you guys have been doing, um, you know, about your choice direct care and everything else, where do they go? Where do they where do they get the education on this that they need? Sure. So I have lectures that I've done in the past about combining direct primary care with less expensive coverage options. Like we were talking about my website, www.yourchoicedirectcare.com on the about page has, has those videos. If people want to watch it. Uh, the dpcfrontier.com uh, also is a good site, uh, though it's, it's very legalese. Uh, and then, um, you know, you can look at places like Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which has many, many videos up. Uh, about direct primary care, and uh, uh, it's growing, so it's 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 coming hopefully to a town near you. Dr. Chad Savage, our guest. Thank you, doctor, for sticking with us and talking with us. I appreciate it. Hold the line for just a second. Folks, we got more coming up. Sarah Montalbano from the Alaska Policy Forum is up next. We're talking education. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Well, Dr. Savage, I mean, this has been very interesting, and I'm wishing why can't you be a doctor here in Alaska is what I'm saying. Uh, that would be great uh, if you could come up here. But I think that's what we need. We need more doctors. Like you said, many doctors know this is a calling, and then they get into it. And, I mean, I've met doctors who basically quit their practices at some point because they're just like the the having to deal with the bureaucracy and the overhead and the everything else. It just it was not what they dreamed of. It was not the care that they wanted to give. I think it was kind of, again, in their mind, that old country doc who got a chance to know his patients and be with them and, and you know, became friends with them and things like that. I think it's, uh, I mean, I think this is a good way. Uh, maybe we're devolving instead of evolving. Maybe we're devolving back to something that was simpler and that makes more sense. Uh, but I think it would be uh, something that was good. I want to give you a chance here to have the last word. And uh, maybe if uh, Kevin McCabe or somebody wanted you to come in and talk about this during his presentation, I don't know if you've had any contact with him, but I thought I'd give you the chance to uh, to shout out there as well. So here's your chance yeah, to. For... I, I didn't. I did not. But two of my friends, I believe, worked with him. Dr. Lee Gross and Dr. Josh Umber, I believe, are working with him. I would be happy to help in any way I can as well. Actually, that's one of the concepts of doing this show is to help out. The, um, um, you know, there's a doctor shortage in the United States. It's getting really bad. Between 2020 and 2022, 115,000 doctors left the healthcare system. Uh, a, a huge chunk of those were primary care doctors. The burnout rate is absolutely phenomenal and in a bad way. And, um, you know, there, there's, there are some critics of direct primary care saying, well, direct primary care will exacerbate the shortage because you're seeing fewer patients. That shortage, shortage predated the advent of direct primary care. It came into existence prior to direct primary care and is being exacerbated in offices that are not adapting direct primary care. Right. If more people will choose primary care if, with, a, with an attractive model, more people will stay in primary care instead of retiring earlier. Um, and then hopefully we keep people healthy, which means you need specialists less and some of those even may become primary care. So a lot of them are board certified internal medicine, which is technically a board a primary care field. And then they do a specialty beyond that. There's nothing that says a lot of those internal med trained specialists couldn't also see. Sorry about that. Couldn't also see, um, uh, you know, primary care patients. Well, exactly. I mean, if you before you went into DPC, if you had to see 30 patients a day versus, you know, once you're in direct primary care, you see eight to 10 patients a day. I mean, the workload obviously changes and the dynamic changes. 
Uh, but yeah. then you're seeing people for what they really need, and they're getting the health care that they really want. It's find a need, fill a need. You don't need to be on an assembly line to make it work. Yeah. So yeah, Absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Chad Savage, uh, I reserve the right to contact you in the future to talk more about this. If that's <laughs> it's okay. a pleasure, Michael. I really appreciate you having me on and getting the word out. Yeah, if uh, if that's okay with you, I'd love to reach out to you again in the future. So thank you for yeah. coming on. Thank you for coming on board. Absolutely. Absolutely, it's a blessing. Thank you, my friend. You bet. Have a great day. Thank you for being a Dr. Chad Savage, our guest here uh, on the Michael Duke Show. That's good stuff, man. I've been wanting to talk about that for quite a while. When I saw this opportunity, I just, I just jumped at it. It's definitely good things. Okay. Um, yeah. Dang. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to have a doctor who truly looked you in the eye and spent 30 minutes just talking about you and your health care? I mean, instead of rushing you in and out. Uh, I mean, that's what I look for when I work with it. I mean, I've worked with some doctors that uh, were like, uh, you know, were the rush in and out kind. Very dissatisfied. I did not feel like I got my $350 worth for my office visit. You know what I mean? Whereas somebody like Dr. Savage definitely would be uh, something that I'm, I'm looking forward to. So, Kevin, thank you for putting that bill in, and we look forward to seeing more about that. Okay, I see that in the green room, Montalbano Mondays are about to begin. Yes, let's do it. Sarah Montalbano, our guest here on the program this morning from the Alaska Policy Forum. Hello, young lady. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? You know, no complaints. Nobody listens anyway, so why bother? That's all I'm saying right now. Uh, are you ready to uh, Are you ready to uh, dive into this with both feet? You got the full yeah, deal? I think so. What's the name of your article that you just did? I'm sorry, I didn't pull it up yet. The name of your article that you just did for the Alaska Policy Forum, um, and uh, what was the uh, what was the name of the uh, article there? Uh, Alaska, Let me find that. Alaska Policy dot uh, uh, org, right? Uh, policy yeah. Forum dot org. There we go. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the most recent I've done is uh, state assessment Alaska students struggling in both reading and math, which is what we are prepared to talk about right. today. Exactly. That's what I uh, wanted to get to. So yeah. I apologize. I should have had that Perfect. ahead of time, but I did not. So. We're ready to go, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about this new STAR, AK STAR, which is the new assessment. And we're going to talk about school choice, which is a big deal. I see that there was an article uh, in this article that where they were chastising the House majority for not seeming to have priorities. Then they said, oh, instead of talking about raising the base student allocation, these evil people are talking about creating school choice. Uh, I mean, that was that was not exactly what they said, but that was kind of the tone, the undertone, the subtext of the article, so to speak. Uh, so, Sarah, oh we'll, yeah, I know. Oh, dear. We're, we're going to jump into this here in just a minute then. OK, you ready? We'll uh, we'll be right Sounds back. Great. to you. Hold off in the uh, in the green room there for a hot minute. All right. So we're going to uh, we're going to get things ready to roll along tomorrow on the program. Brad Keithley, Chris Story. Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets, and of course, uh, 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 Chris is coming in to give us our weekly life coach, uh, a weekly life coaching lesson. Uh, he's going to come in and talk to us uh, about that. Um, that's that's good stuff. That's pretty much it. All right, well, we're going to jump into this here in just a hot second. The Michael Duke Show continues. You're home for common sense, liberty-based, uh, free-thinking radio. Be sure you like and share. Be sure you like and follow, and uh, we will continue with more right now 
Let's, uh, let's get it done. Cue the music. Let's do it. Back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. That's right, live across the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com and around the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM. Translator, that's right. There's only FM translators. There's no AM translators, but that's okay. We're here to do it for you. You ready to dive into this and uh, figure things out? It is Montalbano Mondays. Because we love literation around here. That's why. It's, it's the only reason why we do that. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. She is the education policy analyst for the Alaska Policy Forum. She writes about education outcomes, funding, school choice issues. And uh, she has uh, she does a lot of good stuff around here. And we have continued to ask her back because she is a ray of sunshine. She is a ray of sunshine in a dark, dark world about educational issues. And she joins us right now uh, here on the program. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. How about yourself? You know, no complaints. Uh, ready to go. We're going to talk education this morning, and I'm excited to do it. First things first, you've got an article up uh, over at alaskapolicyforum.org talking about the latest state assessments. Uh, of course, the big rage in the newspapers right now is to talk all about how we're short, we're short funding our kids, and why don't we care, and everything else. And then somebody points out, well, we. We've got a horrible, you know, we got horrible uh, uh, scholastic achievement scores, and maybe we should work on that. And they're like, gasp, how could you do that? How bad is it, Sarah? This really has come about. I mean, tell us, how bad is it really in our scholastic achievement uh, scores? Let's start off to talk about this. Tell us about the AK Star. Yeah, so the AK Star is the this was the first administration of this new exam. We used to have the performance evaluation for Alaska schools, the PEAKS exam, uh, since 2017. 2022 was the first administration of the Alaska system of academic readiness. Um, so there's always some confusions and difficulties with new test design, but the, the results are really kind of alarming. Um, only about 30% of all students were proficient in English language arts statewide, and 23% were proficient in math, so that's less than a quarter. One in four students aren't proficient in math, um, and that's that's far down from the peaks. They're not directly comparable, 
Uh, but if we just look at the direction of the trend, it's down about 10 percentage points since the last peak's exam. Yeah. Yeah. The peaks, uh, the peaks exam. Also, we had some participation, uh, participation, Percipa participation changes in how many people have actually being assessed. So can you explain the difference between the star and the peaks and what, uh, you know, why those changes and what the effect could be on having a lower participation on one versus the other, et cetera? Absolutely. Um, the AK star was designed in part to have uh, more continuity with interim exams like the um, measures of academic progress, the MAP exams that are administered in the winter and the spring. Peaks didn't have that. Uh, so that was one reason I think DEED went that way. Um, participation rates, though, the pandemic really demolished them. Um, the AK star exam in 2022 had about 80% participation, um, which is up about 15 percentage points since the 2021 peaks assessment in the pandemic. Um, but it, the pre-pandemic 2019 was 91%. And we also see there's some difference. The correspondence school students, uh, I think only about 15% participated there. So there are some participation issues, but we do see a really good picture of Alaska's public school students that are in the public schools. Uh, they, they had a really high participation rate, but overall was 80%. Now, uh, this is because I know we're going to hear some people poking at this. Well, they didn't have as much sure. participation, so it's not as accurate and yada, yada, yada. But we've seen the participation go up and down over the years. So really, it's still a valid snapshot of where we're where we are educationally. Right. Absolutely. Participation rates are only useful in um, developing caveats to the data. So if you keep thinking about you know, some reasons, well, yeah, this student group's not so well represented or whatever. Um, it, it's still very useful to take these, take temperature on how Alaska students are going, how well they're doing. So let's, let's talk about the actual findings. And you've mentioned just a couple of them, but let's start at the beginning. Uh, statewide across all the grades, 70% of the students fell below proficiency in ELA. What exactly is ELA again? That is English language arts. So that's reading and a little bit of writing uh, is assessed in the AK star exam. There's several question types, but it kind of covers that whole English language arts. So ELA, 70% of students fell below proficiency. And in math, 77% yes. fell below proficiency. So again, <laughs> we're way behind the power curve on this where kids uh you know we've talked about this when you've got a 75 percent graduation rate meaning 25 percent just flunked out but how many of the remainder can't have don't have basic math skills or basic language art skills where they can read and write and do arithmetic i mean that's supposed to be the things those are the three r's right reading writing arithmetic wait that's not how it works but that's where it is <laughs> absolutely and what we see is really concerning about which grades are having the worst times that are least proficient because each of these grades are really key transitional grades um, for students. Third graders were the least proficient in reading, uh, which is really remarkable. Only 21% of third graders statewide met grade level expectations. Uh, and that's, we've talked about this before. It's really, really important for students to know how to read, appropriately going into fourth grade so that they can begin to uh, read to learn the other subjects, social studies and math, that are not still learning how to read at that point. 
Um, and then eighth graders were the least proficient in mathematics. And that, that statistic shocked me when I looked at this. Only 12% of eighth grade students statewide were proficient on this mathematics exam. And that is a lot less than 1,000 students. It's 930 something students were proficient and met eighth grade expectations. That's that's pretty astonishing, especially considering the amount of money that we are pouring into the education system now and how much more they want to pour into it in the future. Uh, and there were some other district level numbers that I'll be honest with you, blew my ever loving mind um, because we start talking about winners and losers. I mean, Skagway apparently is the place you want to send your kids if you want your kids to be uh, proficient. 59% of the tested students were proficient in mathematics, 70% proficient in reading. Great job. But when you got down into the lowest percentage, it was astonishing. Uh, that's got down into the lower Yukon School District where only eight of its nearly 1,100 students, only eight students were proficient in math and reading what it's really astounding that is less than one percent of their enrollment and they did have high participation they had 95 percent of their students participating um so it's it's really a difficult question um for districts that how how is this even acceptable i i mean i read this and i was shocked really so uh, let's let's move on here into the uh, key findings of it. Let's talk a little bit about uh, again. We're just smacking down some statistical truth on people here. You can you can take it for what it's worth. You can love it. You can leave it. You can say that this just shows that we need more money, or you could be asking some other questions like how do we continue to pour money into something that's broken? But let's go into the key findings here. Absolutely. So I really encourage all of you to go read this report. There's some statistics that I'm very fond of in there. Um, but as we said, uh, about 30% of students statewide were proficient in English language arts and only 23% in math. That is about a third and then a quarter of our students are actually proficient in these really critical things. Um, eighth, grade, eighth graders were the least proficient in math, less than a thousand students. Um, really remarkable. And that's really important because eighth grade is where you start leaping off into high school mathematics, where you you're deciding whether you're doing pre-calculus or calculus or any of these other grade grade level subjects. Um, and third graders were least proficient in reading, which is really concerning because they're go, trying to go into fourth grade uh, to learn other subjects. They're trying to be done with learning how to read. Um, of the five major school districts in Alaska. Uh, the Anchorage School District did report the highest proficiency in both subjects, about 34% in English language arts and 27% in math. Those still aren't remarkable, and every, uh, all of the five major school districts fell within a few percentage points of each of those. Um, so that's that's not a huge crown, but they did right. do the, their best. Um, yeah, and, and in math, it was really astounding. 36 schools reported 10% or fewer of their students proficient in math and in ELA, 26% reported the same. Um, so we have lots of schools, lots of districts too, 11% of, di uh, 
11 districts reported 5% or fewer students proficient in math, and eight reported the same in ELA. Well, so we, we really have a, a, a crisis here. <laughs> I mean, you're right. It is a dubious crown with their highest percentage for proficiency in reading is 34% and in math is 27%, and they're the king of the heap as far as the five major school districts. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's not you got less than seven in 10 can't read uh, or can't do math yeah. and almost seven in 10 can't read. That's a huge problem. And in fact, you talk about uh, you you made a, a brazen statement, Sarah. How could you make such a brazen <laughs> statement in this key findings where you basically say schools aren't working for three quarters of Alaskan students, period. Yeah, that's what it shows. And so I stand by that. I know. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, so I mean, the the question is, is more money going to fix this problem or does it have to be a fundamental shift in what we're doing? Because it's obviously not working. Yeah, these outcomes really aren't uh, they aren't what we're paying for. We are paying more than eighteen thousand dollars per student. Um for each year that they're in public schools in Alaska. On average, there are some districts that are way, way higher. And throwing more money at the problem is not going to help. Uh, What I've uh, seen in some recent research that will be coming out fairly soon um, is that the growth in administrative salaries and um, support services has really outpaced teachers. Um, The number of teachers since 2002 dropped, I want to say, about 7%. And administrative staff and all of these other categories went way, way up. Um, So we're seeing that these increases in funding have been absorbed more in the administrative and support apparatus than actually going to teachers, teaching in the classroom, directly helping the students. And more money isn't a magic bullet for that. Well, and that's what we've discussed with the BSA, right? The BSA is not factored to get those dollars necessarily into the classroom. A big chunk of that BSA is directly supportive of the overhead costs, which were already skyrocketing. That's the biggest problem here. Absolutely. I I definitely see some problems with our school funding formula. The biggest is that it doesn't have incentives for outcomes and, uh, I would really encourage all of us to go look at Tennessee's model because Tennessee just revamped its school funding formula and it includes a whole section to itself on outcomes driven funding. And one of the things that they incentivize are third graders who are passing their state's uh, English language arts exam. And for each school, each student that does that, they get 10% added on to their BSA for proficient students. And so it really rewards and incentivizes schools to allocate their money more efficiently and to get those results. Um, You know, however it's being done, they are able to do that more efficiently. Sarah Montalbano is our guest, education policy analyst for the Alaska Policy Forum. It is Montalbano Monday. I love saying that. It's just so much fun. All right. We're going to be back with more here in just a moment. We're going to talk a little bit more about this AK Star program. It's what some of the findings are and some of the things that Sarah has suggested, which I think make sense. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to move on to school choice in the final segment uh, with this, the educational hour right here on the Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Back with more right after this.
If you missed the show, you can listen to it on your time with Dukes On Demand. Oh, and it's free. Like America used to be. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, uh, in the break, Sarah Montalbano, our guest uh, here on the big radio show. Um, that, that's just some bold words, Sarah. Schools aren't working <laughs> for three quarters of Alaskan students. I mean, you immediately made some enemies when you said that. I'm just saying right now. But it's not. <laughs> but I mean, it's not true. I mean, it's not untrue. It's it's the hundred percent the truth. It is not working when you have. Let me go back to the numbers again. When you have got uh, only in the Anchorage School District, which is the best of the big five school districts, 34% pass their reading proficiency and 27% pass their math proficiency. How, I mean, how are we going to proceed ahead as a nation if this is the kind of scoring that we're getting out of our education system? I mean, this is we're supposed to be the best and the brightest. We're supposed to be that shining city on the hill. But if we can't add two plus two and give proper change at a checkout counter, that's a problem. Absolutely. These are the basic skills that students really need uh, to succeed in life. I mean, there are so many problems with not being able to read by grade three. Uh, that I, I just, it's it's such a predictor of, of life performance um, and your success. So it's it's really a travesty that up to a third of Alaska students are reading at grade level. Um, we can do a lot better. And for me, this really does show that Alaska students need other options. They need help now. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm just proud because uh, every one of my kids, um, when they did the assessments throughout the years, uh, and we were homeschooled, all of us, uh, they all, we one thing that we were able as parents, I mean, I'm not saying we were the best teachers ever, but we were able to instill a love of reading into all of our children. Every one yeah. of our kids was reading at a college grade level at the end of grade school going into junior high school. I mean, they love to they love to read you know just like they're just like their dad who loved to read and so i think that that's a plus math not always my strong suit i probably would have been somewhere (laughs) down in there but i mean i did okay i passed i made it i got it out i understand math and you know all the way up to basically algebra one and then i'm like well i sloped right off because my creative brain (laughs) my creative brain does not like some of that stuff but i mean this is this is it i mean we're spending millions of dollars like you said average of $18,000 a kid for 70% of them to fail that that is the definition of insanity absolutely i really really think the solution to these kind of problems are to start looking at incentivizing outcomes because this is not a tenable situation for alaska's kids i i mean if we hand them a diploma that doesn't show that they've learned anything that they need to learn uh, for future access. It's, it's, it's certain, it's never their fault. It is just, it is the school system that is really not, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's, it's lost so much of its momentum onto peripheral functions that it's not ensuring that they can do basic math and read at an appropriate grade level by the time they've graduated. Right. I mean, inappropriate. I mean, it's, again, I'm bragging yeah. on my kids, but they could read, again, many levels above where they were at 
<clears throat> when they were sure. in, yeah. you know, junior high school, they're reading at a you know freshman college level. Many we're talking about kids who could basically read one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, right at the grade level that they're asking them to. That's a exactly. that's huge. I mean, that is just huge. And and again, uh, the idea that somehow this is a money problem is 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 just blown apart by this kind of studying and this kind of show this kind of statistics it shows exactly what the problem is it's not a money problem with $18,000 per student it's not a participation problem as you pointed out it's the fact that what the system that we're using something is fundamentally broken in how we're teaching the kids and that is what needs to change absolutely i i really see just so many problems in Alaska school system but so much of it comes down to this administrative spending that's it, this growth in spending has been funneled right into admin and support and those are all things that are peripheral to these exact functions of learning how to read at least enough to survive in the world i mean yeah. so many of america's adults are functionally illiterate and we certainly aren't helping the problem no definitely not a well-read culture let's put it that way yeah. right now all right, Sarah Montalbano is our guest. We're going to finish up talking about AK Star, some of her suggestions, and then we're going to move on to school choice. Here we go. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty Based, Free Thinking Radio. Like and share, like and share. Here we go. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. Just like saying that. I don't know why. Uh, it's Montalbano <laughs> Mondays, one hour of educational discussions here on the program with Sarah Montalbano, who is the education policy analyst for the Alaska Policy Forum. And uh, we've been talking about the AK Star assessment, which is the state assessments for scholastic achievement, uh, which covers pretty much every district and uh, borough area in the state. Uh, she's got all the graphs. She's got all the charts. She's got it all laid out there. And it is, <clears throat> quite honestly, uh, disturbing, Sarah, when you see that basically the idea here is is that, um, you know, one third of Alaskan students are basically hitting their proficiency matrices, which means one third can read, one third can do math. I mean, and that's an average. We're talking about some schools where less than one percent are hitting those numbers. And even in the highest grades, it's like 50, 60, maybe 70% are able to read, leaving, again, a third of them out in the cold. This is a real problem. Now, you've got some suggestions in here. And again, bold. Sarah's making some bold stuff here. She says, many students, uh, for many students, mathematic uh, challenges undoubtedly justify additional remedial time and one-on-one tutoring, which basically is why you say, why not have unspent American Rescue Plan funds used to help that, uh, right? I mean, they've got, a lot of these school districts have got millions of dollars still socked away from the uh, from the COVID money. And you say, why not use that for some one-on-one remedial training? Absolutely. That is one of the suggestions, actually, that the United States Department of Education gives out for these American Rescue Plan funds. Districts are sitting on millions of dollars. I think they received more more than 500 million at the beginning of this pandemic, and the vast majority of it is in the American Rescue Plan. They have to spend it by, I want to say, next July yeah, 2024. 2024, um, yeah. And 
Yeah. Uh, and some of them are expiring in 2023, but most of them in 2024. And so what they really need to be spending time on is um, th this one-on-one -on -one time, this remedial time, especially for mathematics, but also not taking the focus off of early literacy um, because a lot of students just need this extra class time um, and it's it's going to be really hard to get it. Um, what uh, what schools should really be considering doing are, um, you know, after school programs for mathematics, doing, doing, you know, an hour of class time after the school year, they should be considering, you know, all of these ways to cram in a little extra time during the school week. Um, and, and this, this would be a really appropriate use of the funds. Um, what we've seen in some previous reporting on how Alaska school districts are spending this is that some of them are taking the money to go rent a pool for kids' social and emotional health. They're taking, you know, they're they're using these funds for really long time coming, you know, infrastructure projects that they just, they have this windfall and they need to get new tiling for the floors or something like that. Um, so as schools are not necessarily mismanaging this funding, uh, but a lot of them are using it for things that are, again, peripheral to the basic duty of uh, education to teach basic math and reading. Right. Or to use it to offset uh, repeated funding, like uh, paying for salaries and benefits and bonuses. <laughs> and stuff. I yeah. mean, you know, let's <laughs> let's just not look at the elephant in the room here on this and everything no. else. Um, <clears throat> the bottom bottom line here for me, though, on this uh, on these state assessments, the uh, the AK star uh, assessments, bottom line, the whole thing for me. Give me a good summation before we move on to school choice. What should people be? What should be the takeaways, and what should people be looking at in these numbers? By the way, I've posted a link to Sarah's article in the chat room, which has all the charts and all the statistics. So, if you are concerned about this and you want to have more information and more ammunition when you go to talk to people about it, go over to this uh, article. But Sarah, bottom line it for me here, and uh, give me a, a good summation. Yeah, about a one third of Alaska students are able to read and do math at grade level. Um, that, that means two-thirds aren't meeting these grade-level expectations, and sometimes a lot of them just won't catch up. Um, we have some certain problem grades, eighth grade and third grade, um, for mathematics and reading, respectively. Um, and then we absolutely have many schools and many districts that are reporting 5% or fewer of their students proficient, or 10% or fewer. And that that is just really remarkable when 9 out of 10 um, students in a school or a district are not proficient. And some of these districts, like we talked about the Lower Yukon School District, there's a few under suppression rules that could have as few as zero. Uh, and that's that's floored me. Um, so just go check out this report, read the statistics. Um, and, and just remember that more money is not going to fix this problem. We have to think about how to incentivize outcomes and right. improvement in these outcomes. Well, and again, just to remind people, I uh, can't remember if we talked about this on air or during the break, but just to remind people that the base student allocation is fundamentally formulated not to necessarily put more dollars in the classroom and, and increase the teaching component of it. There's a huge part of the BSA, which basically that money goes straight to administrative and overhead. And so as, as much as you hear all the legislators and the news media and the papers talk about how we need to fully fund and drop another thousand on the BSA because that's the only way we're going to get our kids up 
a huge part of that goes straight to overhead. And as we talked about before, the student enrollment is declining in a downward slope like this, and the administrative costs are going up like this, the administrative overhead. And you're going to talk about that here in the future with us because you're seeing some of these new numbers. But we're seeing the number of, of, of administrators and overhead people, people who are not directly related to the teaching in the classroom, is going up. Uh, at an at a uh-huh. pretty su- substantial rate, and we'll talk about that uh, as we get into that uh, next week. All right. So again, as I said earlier, this article in the uh, uh, the uh, the Daily News talks about uh, the uh, the fact that the majority, the House majority, the Republicans just don't have a plan. They don't have a plan, and instead of boosting the one thousand dollar boost to the BSA, as everybody seems to think. They say basically, well, they want to talk more about uh, school choice and they kind of poo-poo it. I mean, they really make it sound like this is just, I mean, how crazy are they for wanting to talk about school choice instead of bolstering the BSA? (laughs) But school choice is making a huge, um, there's a huge uh, uh, push for school choice, not just in Alaska, but across the country. And part of that comes out of what we've learned from the pandemic, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. Nationwide, we're seeing a lot of pushes in this legislative session. I believe Iowa and Utah, I want to say. Maybe your your listeners have the right states and they'll just blast them, blast them into the comments. Um, but we're seeing a lot of pushes for um, education savings accounts. That's where um, a portion of the, the state's per student funding is deposited into an account and parents can take that out to spend on different educational expenses. There's some restrictions, but most of them, uh, it's pretty broad. Um, You know, Arizona last year passed a universal ESA that is accessible for all families. Um, And all of those are really exciting developments, but the limited school choice that we do have in Alaska is currently under attack. Yeah, I mean, and David in the chat room says, we shouldn't use the term school choice, use the term (laughs) parent empowerment. Which I, I mean, like it. I, you know, great. <laughs> and because, yeah, school choice has got some baggage and everything else. But we've talked about, you know, backpack funding, the again, the educational accounts where they can they can move around and people can spend it. Um, but school choice is, again, making a push across the country and Alaska needs to get on board. So let's talk about, you know, what does the policy form? What is your analysis? What 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 are the good choices that we should be looking at here for school choice in Alaska? What are the options and what do you think personally is probably the best of the options that we could be discussing and talking about? Sure, that's an interesting question. Um, What we do need to do most urgently is protect what we do have. And we have a really innovative program um, in Alaska, the Correspondent School Allotment Program. As far as I know, it is unique nationwide. Um, Under that program, you're students enrolled in correspondence schools um, may be reimbursed for certain educational expenses um, that could vary widely. Uh, internet, technology, supplies, tutoring, classes at private schools, music or activity lessons, um, really whatever you come up with, as long as it's part of the student's plan, um, that that is something that the state has supported. Um, it, it's been in the legislature enacted in 2014 and hundreds of families have been relying on this program for years. Um, And I I really hope parents 
uh, who may be listening consider this option uh, for their students because it really allows you to build a customized education in a lot of ways that ESAs do in other states. And I, I mean, I agree. The school allotment, I mean, my children, my oldest daughter now is 28 years old, I guess, 28, 29. Uh, she was what she was in the first class. Uh, the chart the basically we were one of the charter families, one of the original families That's with awesome. I, with idea, right? Which is the mm -hmm. Galena City Interior Distance Education, and so we put all five kids through that, where they got the allotment, we provided a plan, we got the allotment, and they all have turned out okay. You know, they all did okay, and again, they can all do reading, they can all do math, they can do the basic stuff that's important. Um, and I think that that's a fantastic program. Is that program under threat? I mean, are we are we looking at ways to to you know subvert this thing that has been working so well for the last twenty years? It is. The NEA has funded a lawsuit uh, that seeks to end parents' abilities to use those correspondence school allotments for private educational services. Um, so one of the options under CSEP, uh, the correspondence school allotment program, is to purchase um, classes at approved private schools as long as they're non-religious. That's, that's not a problem. Um, the NEA has funded this lawsuit. Um, and the Institute for Justice has teamed up with some Alaska families to defend this program, uh, which I think is really, really encouraging. Yeah, no, it definitely, uh, again, has been a fantastic way. And you could see the growth of it. I mean, I think what the why the NEA got involved, quite honestly, is because, <clears throat> for example, I know IDEA, basically, there was some geometric uh, there was some geometric growth over the course of years. I mean, even 10 years ago. Uh, in Fairbanks, I know I, I knew the superintendent, and we talked quite frequently that it was it was growing and growing and growing. And then we saw this explosion, a thirty percent increase after the COVID. Um, in 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 I know for at least a couple different systems received almost a thirty percent increase. And I think what they're what's happening is the school systems and the districts and the unions specifically are getting nervous because people might be making choices that don't benefit them in the long them being the teachers unions etc in the long run yeah teachers unions are an occupational union and their primary interest is job security and uh, that that's just the way a union works that's not necessarily good or bad but that means that their interests aren't always aligned with the best interests of kids and hundreds of families have been using this program and the lawsuit isn't thinking about these actual Alaskan kids and their futures. Right. Uh, it's really remarkable that they want to take this away from so many families that are benefiting from it. And and just like your kids, they turn out fine. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and as I have talked to several educators over the years who have worked in this system, they like this system a lot better. I mean, they are teachers. They're NEA members, I'm sure, and everything else. But they're like... I like this a lot better because it's it works for me. I can work with the kids one on one. I can do all these things. You always have a teacher as a parent. You always have a teacher at your fingertips if you're having struggling yourself to be able to teach your kids something or if the kid needs some one on one stuff with an actual educator to help out. And the the teachers that I've spoken to over the last 15 years have all been like, this is great. I love this more than teaching in a full classroom. I still got, I've got more students than I ever had in a one classroom, but I get a chance to work with them one-on-one. -on -one. And so this really is more about the power of the union than it is about the individual aspect from the teacher standpoint. Mm -hmm. I really find that 
uh, an interesting point because there's so many ways in which school choice benefits teachers too. Um, they get a lot more flexibility. They get more one-on-one -on -one time. They're able to do all these creative and innovative lesson plans that they want to do, but they can't do in the public school system. Um, and, and the creativity and the ability to customize your students' education is, is one of the awesome things about this correspondence school program um, is that you're able to take a, a portion of these funds and use them to take the different blocks that your kid needs. You're able to meet your kid's needs so much more effectively. Um, and that that's just, that's wonderful. That's wonderful for kids. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. One final segment dead ahead. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk specifically about this idea of ESAs, of backpack funding, so to speak, and how we get this, how do we get this, some bills written about this? How do we get some traction built on this from Sarah's perspective? And just kind of, let's pick her brain a little bit here. That's coming up next with Sarah Montalbano from the Alaska Policy Forum, The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-Based, Free-Thinking Radio. Suppository. The Michael Duke Show. Okay, Sarah Montabano is our guest here in the chat room. Uh, let's uh, let's go over here and see what else has been going. Uh, education has been going down uh, in this country as a whole since the creation of the Federal Department of Education. I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, I think that that's been part of the problem is once they federalized it and made it cookie cutter for everybody. Um, I mean, this is something we talked about with Dr. Savage. And the, there's a lot of similarities between healthcare choice and school choice, quite honestly, because <clears throat> the cookie cutter method does not work for anybody in healthcare or in education. I mean, I have five kids. And I'll tell you right now, each one of those kids had a different learning style. And if we'd forced them into a classroom, some would not have thrived as much as they did in a homeschooling system because their educational learning style was so different than their siblings and would be so different than many of the other kids in the classroom. We need that for sure. Um, love, love, love idea, says Laura. If you are a parent that is worried about being able to teach your own, don't be. The freedom of choice will blow your mind. And that's exactly right. I mean, look, I'm I I graduated high school, right? I took one year of college. That's my that's my claim to fame. I'm not a teacher. My wife is not a teacher, but we still were able to teach these kids with the help of some fantastic contact teachers and the help of people at places like Idea. You don't I mean, that's what I think that was the the thing, Sarah, what people really learned in the pandemic when they got pissed off. Pardon me pissed off about all this educational stuff when they shut down the schools and everything else. And parents were like, well, we got to do something. They were desperate. And so they started these homeschooling programs. And all of a sudden, many of them were like, wait, wait, this isn't as hard as you told us. It. You told us this would be nearly impossible for us because we're ignorant monkeys who can't teach our own kids because we don't have a teaching certificate. And wait, we found ways that it's actually better and easier. And I think that was a huge eye opener for many parents out there. So many parents saw this, and I, I really like that portrayal because teachers have always, you know, felt that you need this teaching certificate. And a lot of what teachers' colleges do is just teach you how to teach, 
and not as much the subject matter um, that the teacher is eventually going to be teaching. And I think parents who have the drive to look through the internet, find the best teaching resources, there's never been a better time to learn uh, than when you have this wide open computer uh, with every educational material you could want right in front of you. Um, and and that's, that's really encouraging because parents can do this and with the support of the correspondence schools and idea and places like this, uh, it really becomes achievable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you realize that there's things on the internet like Math Doesn't Suck or the Khan Academy or many of these other free options that are out there that you can teach your own, you could develop your own, uh, your own uh, uh, you know, study plan and your own uh, school plan for your kids. It's based on them. I mean, for one kid, we had we did what they call unit studies. I mean, the kid was obsessed, obsessed with things like space and things like that. And you're like, OK, so how do we wrap that around? Reading. Well, here's the Robert Heinlein books, right? Here's some old Robert Heinlein and Rolling Stones. And here's how do we wrap it around math? Well, okay, here's stuff about atmospheric stuff and, and things like that and science. And so you build a whole curriculum based around a subject that they're supremely interested in. And all of a sudden the kid is learning all this stuff and it's not really learning. It's just fun because it's his favorite subject. I mean, that's just one way that things can be done. And, uh, and it's not something that they could do in a brick and mortar school system. No, no, it's really wonderful to hear stories like that. Um, and that's that's one of the reasons I'm excited uh, for all of these different homeschool options is that kids are able to direct their own learning a lot. They're able to follow their interests and then learning's not a chore anymore when you're actually interested in what you're learning. Um, so I, I love it. And I love Heinlein too. Yeah, no, Heinlein is, that was, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, I remember Starman Jones and Rolling Stones. I mean, some of those old 50s oh, yeah. ones especially were really, really good. <laughs> and then he got super libertarian later on, which I dug. So anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, Heinlein is a good choice uh, to start off with for sure. Harold uh, uh, says, Sarah documented the reality of the ineffective education funding formula. In 2003, I was working capital projects for a school district. An accountant was stressing over audit requirements. I dropped her work files into the trash and said, let's go to lunch. No one will ever ask about your precious files. During lunch, her files were dumped by the janitor. After 10 years, she said, you know what? No one ever asked about those files. I mean, that's the where's the accountability, Sarah? Where's the accountability? If we're supposed to audit, if we're supposed to do this, we're supposed to do that. Where's the accountability? A lot of the accountability is happening in these forms that are never looked at, that are never requested by the public. School districts have some reporting requirements under the Every Student Succeeds Act. Federally, um, they have to do certain um, financial transparency things uh, as well as academic. Um, but anything that's not asked for is put in these files and put in the trash or stowed away in a file cabinet or some computer folder somewhere. Uh, and it really needs parents and the general public to start asking questions um, because schools, public schools are treated so much as the default um, that they, they just aren't held accountable. It's a horrible situation. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. We're about to jump back into it. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like a chair, like a chair, like a chair. Okay, 
one final segment now. Sarah Montalbano, our guest, education policy analyst from the Alaskan Policy Forum. If you haven't gotten a chance, I recommend that you go out and uh, read uh, her articles that are under the Education tab at the Alaska Policy Forum website at alaskapolicyforum.org. She's got a whole list of them. Her latest piece talked about uh, Alaska students struggling with both math and reading. Again, only one-third of students, that's an average, are proficient, um, with the lowest ones being less than 1%, which is just devastating when I read some of these numbers. But we're talking about school choice now, and we were just talking about some of the different options. Corey DeAngelis, who is the education uh, guru over there at Reason Magazine, has been promulgating the idea that what we need is what he calls backpack funding, where the funding follows the students. Now, that's been called several different things. I know that in Arizona, the ESA is the same kind of thing. It's an educational student account where they can, or education savings account, where money gets put in there and the parents have access to it to do anything for their schooling. Uh, That's a lot of freedom uh, and that's a lot of stuff. And I imagine it's going to get a lot of pushback in the state. But let's talk about backpack funding or ESAs in the state, Sarah. I mean, what are the possibilities of us actually pushing this forward? How do we get these to even be part of the discussion? And how do we leverage what we talked about in the first segment with the the, uh, AK Star reports and everything else? How do we show that what we're doing is not working and that's why we need these things? Education savings accounts, I think, are a really exciting idea, idea. and um, they're really there's so much momentum for it nationwide that I think that's one of the first pushes is look towards the success stories from parents and families in these states. ESAs are working really, really well, especially for parents in Arizona uh, right now. Uh, legally, the Alaska Constitution has a what, what's called a Blaine Amendment, and I think we've discussed this at a certain point two weeks ago, maybe, um, that the Blaine Amendment in Alaska is a little stricter than other Blaine Amendments that were shot down in uh, Espinosa v. Montana. Um, This prohibits public funding to um, private schools and religious schools. So other Blaine Amendments are often just religious schools, ours says private schools as well. Um, So that is going to present some challenges to an ESA. I have no doubt that they could be worked out if there was enough excitement about it here in the state political um, will but there are, political will yeah, we call it, that yeah yeah it's political capital to surmount something like that um so i really see alaska's biggest opportunity for school choice in the preservation and expansion of the correspondence school allotment program i think that's a really innovative thing that's working really well for alaska's families um and we can't let that be taken away kids did this cookie cutter approach learning is not effective it's not working uh for three quarters of alaskan students we've seen that in these outcomes um it cannot be one size fits all and parents need the ability to design their child's curriculum to fit their learning needs and the correspondent school allotment program does that so well And, and i agree i mean again as a as a parent with kids who have been part of that system since the beginning i totally agree with that analysis uh that it needs to happen um, is there, uh, do you have a suggestion for trying to end run this amendment? I mean, that's again, part of the problem is, is that this is not strictly a Blaine, it's Blaine like, or Blaine, mm-hmm. Blaine adjacent. I mean, it's very similar. <laughs> and, uh, so, I mean, what, what's the workaround on that? Because it's pretty cut and dry to me. We would have to have a constitutional amendment to, uh, to change that specifically, or 
there would have to be some other kind of court or Supreme Court case that basically said that that doesn't work. So what's the do you have any suggestions for a solution? I, I wish I could speculate. I'm not a lawyer. I am a data person. Um, I, I don't see the avenues so easily, but I do think it would probably have to go uh, to a pretty high level of either state courts or federal courts um, to get solved. I, I don't see all that much around it. Um, but I, I would love to hear from lawyers about that because I really don't know how to how to do that. Uh, and, and and I think, you know, the bottom line here is what we need is we need more parents to be involved in this. I mean, this kind of information uh, to show the latest star. I mean, to, the next time I see a story in the ADN that talks about how we've underfunded our schools and woe be under these kids and everything else. I think there should be a component of that article that talks about things like this star assessment to say that only one third can read and write. One third could do it. I mean, we need to get parents involved. I mean. Uh, somebody says in the chat room here, most parents don't have the luxury of time to focus on education. That's the job of schools. I think that's wrong. This is a parent's responsibility. They may abdicate it to schools. They may treat the schools like they're, you know, babysitters who just happen to be teaching at the same time. But if parents don't take the if they don't take the bull by the horns on this, you're going to have what we have today, which is basically only three out of four graduate. And those three out of four of those remaining only one third of them can actually read or do basic math. That's some serious problems there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I really think parents need to be involved to the extent that they can. There's always going to be parents that are unable or unwilling to put the time into their child's education. And that's a sad fact, but it, it's yeah. not going to change. Um, the parents that do, though, need to be thinking very carefully about their child's achievements. Ask your teachers questions. Um, don't just wait for the report card to come home and say, yep, it's all A's, we're good. Um, you know, just ask your child questions at school, about, about school, and do your best to um, participate in the school board process and talk to your superintendent. Look at the things that aren't working for you. And, and really you know, take responsibility for your child's education because there's right. only so much that the education system can do if if there's no parental involvement. Right. I mean, if this is not the job of the schools. This is the job of the parents. You can abdicate a portion of it or you can abdicate all of it to the schools. And I think when you do all of it, that's part of the problem. Using the education system is one thing, you know, giving, turning it over to them. But keeping your finger on the pulse of it is. And like you said, there are just going to be parents who don't care. They're just going to be parents who are like, get the kids out of my hair for eight hours or whatever. That's that's all that matters to them. And uh, unfortunately, that's just the way life is. But for those that do care, they need to get down into it and look at these statistics and understand that we have got a serious, serious problem in the education system in America, not just in Alaska, because Alaska is one, but these numbers don't hold far off for other states either, right? Yeah, I, looking at the state assessments a little more difficult because this is unique to Alaska, but the 2022 National Assessment of Educational Progress, that's nationwide. Alaska is 49th in fourth grade reading. Uh, we're up only from New Mexico, um, but we didn't lose a lot of points in reading. This pandemic really took, you know, I, I want to say six months of math achievement in Alaska for Alaska students took that away. And there are similar, you know, numbers for reading and math. So I, America is in an educational crisis, too. Um, it's just that you know, here in Alaska, we can do something about it. We can really work uh, to improve these outcomes and 
I, I'm really excited for it. I mean, I hate to tell, I hate to say I told you so, but no, I don't really hate to say I told you so. <laughs> I've been talking about this on this program for going probably close to 15, 20 years now to say basically that something in our education system is fundamentally broken. And until we acknowledge that something is broken, it doesn't matter how much money we throw at it. It doesn't matter how much fervor and, and how much we wring our hands until we admit that there is something flawed in the system that we have right now and start looking to other countries who are having great achievement. Um, then we're never going to fix this problem. You know, and people say, well, we, you know, in Germany, they uh, they decide like right out of junior high school where what what career these kids are going to take. And they, you know, that's just not right. But look at what they're doing. I mean, look at the achievements. If the kid doesn't have an interest in being a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or, a, a you know, some kind of then maybe that's just what they want. You know, maybe that is something we should be looking at instead of trying to cookie cutter our way through this whole thing and that is that's the horrific part 90 seconds sarah i'll let you sum things up and uh and leave us with some good thoughts maybe go for it <laughs> i hope to have some optimism here um you know our our state assessment 30 percent not proficient reading statewide across all grades we have a lot of schools and districts that are 10 percent, 5 percent or fewer um that's really concerning. The grades that um, have the worst achievement in English language arts and mathematics are the ones that are really, really critical. And to me, this just really shows that school is not working. The education system in Alaska, it is not working for three quarters of these students. Um, and so what we really need to look at are preserving and expanding the options that Alaska does have. Look into charter schools, look at the correspondence school allotment program, um, this cookie cutter approach is just not effective. It's not working. And we need to focus on ways to help families and we need to focus on it now. Horace Mann wanted to turn us all into the assembly line thing. Maybe that was a mistake. I'm just saying maybe yes. that was a big problem <laughs> and we should stop holding him up like he was some kind of savior of the whole system. Uh, all right, Sarah Montevano, thank you so much. Folks, out of time tomorrow, Brad Keithley, Chris Story, The Michael Duke Show. See you then. All right, Sarah. Any final thoughts before I let you uh, before I let you fly out of here? Uh, you, I mean, you've we've gone over this pretty exhaustively, but uh, I always love to <laughs> always love for you to drop one more one more nugget on me on the way out the door. I mean, gosh, there's there's so many nuggets here. Um, yeah, I just just go to talk to the school boards, talk to the superintendents, demand accountability. And while you're thinking about these legislative discussions about the BSA, just remember. Alaska is spending $18,000 on average. We are spending per student with local, state, and federal funds involved $18,000, and we are not getting the outcomes we're paying for. Remember Sarah's parting shot across the bow. Schools aren't working for three quarters of Alaskan students. Them's is fighting words. I love it. I love it. Sarah Montalbano, <laughs> as always, my dear, good to talk with you. Let's get back together you. when you get that administrative report. I want to talk about that as well. Let's get back together then, okay? Uh, absolutely. I'm excited to talk about it in more detail. All right. Thank you so much. Sarah Montalbano, our guest here on The Michael Duke Show. Folks, we are out of time. We got more coming up tomorrow. Thank you for being part of the show today. I love having you on. And we'll see you tomorrow, okay? Be kind. Love one another. And uh, live well, will you? Let's do it.
We've shed our terrestrial radio skin, and now we are slimy lizard internet people. It's the Michael Duke Show. 